Welcome to another episode of Anthropod. I'm Jessica Lachlan. And I'm Rupa Pillai. Today, we're continuing our two-part series on publishing. Last episode, we learned a bit about the process of getting a journal article published, as well as received some pretty helpful advice on how to tackle the process by scholars who review and have been reviewed. Jessica, what's in store for us in this episode? For this episode, I spoke with the incoming editors of Cultural Anthropology, Dominic Boyer, James Fabian, and Simony Howe. After looking to the future of the journal, we will look to the past. I spoke with George Marcus, who was the very first editor of Cultural Anthropology more than 30 years ago. We talked about those early days of the journal and what it was like to be an editor back then. My final interview is with Mary Merle. Mary worked for many years as an editor and then conducted ethnographic research on mass book digitizers and the future of the book. Sounds fascinating. Let's get right to the first interview with Dominique, James, and Simony. Sure. They are also on the faculty in the Department of Anthropology at Rice University. The first issue of Cultural Anthropology under their editorship will be February 2015. I am working with them now as an editorial assistant, so I thought I'd sit down with them to talk about their process and plans for the future of the journal. Let's listen. Welcome, Dominic, James, and Simony to Anthropod. Let's begin by talking about the review process. After an author submits an article, what happens next and what can an author expect? Okay, I can take that one. Um, this is Dominic. Um, so the first thing that will happen is when um, an article is approved to come to us, it has to first pass through your desk, Jessica, and you have to see that it's the right word length and that the, the author is a member of SCA or has paid their fee. But when it finally gets to us, um, we will review, we review um, articles weekly. So within about a week to 10 days, you'll have an initial review. And uh, at this point, we're sending out about 70% of, of articles on to peer review, which we think is important because the Society for Cultural Anthropology now publishes cultural anthropology. And we are supported by the members of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. And we view peer review as one of the services that we can offer uh, members in exchange for their support of the journal. So we'd like to, we will continue to send uh, well over half of, of submissions out for peer review, but um, it's also the reality that we can only publish less than 10% of the submissions we receive, so um, we ask that reviewers um, turn their um, reviews around in about four weeks. Uh, in reality, I think it's more like six to eight weeks. Um, there's little we can do, unfortunately, to speed them up. When, when manuscripts pass across our desk, we, we, we turn them over very quickly, but uh, the, the reviewers are really what um, tends to draw the process out. So when the reviews come back in, um, then we have a look at them and see, uh, we do an internal review again, and then decide whether this is a piece that can be accepted, whether it's a piece that still needs substantial work, um, it's a revise and resubmit, or whether we're not going to be able to work with it, uh, and it's a reject. So um, that's pretty much the structure of the review process, and uh, we try to make it as speedy as, as possible and transparent as possible, and I think we're doing a pretty good job thus far, although we're really only three months into the work, so we haven't even gotten to the stage yet where we've been really able to accept anything uh, in its final form. What I would add to that is that we don't just use our own networks among the three of us for our reviewers, that we actually use the expertise of our very vast uh, editorial board so that we're drawing upon the networks and the expertise of a good number of anthropologists, all of which represent uh, PhD programs at prominent universities throughout the United States and in fact internationally. So we draw from a wide range of reviewers to try and create balance in those reviews. Well, for the listeners who might not be academics, could you say a little more about what peer review is and the importance of it? The basic principle of peer review is that you have uh, colleagues at other institutions who are experts in, in, you know, either in the area in which you work or in the topics that you sort of focus on who are going to be looking at your work and giving you substantive feedback and evaluation in addition. And it's, a, it's something that we do at all sorts of different levels from you know, promotion and tenure cases, uh, hiring cases in some instances, um, all the way through to these sorts of book publishing and, and journal publishing. It's a really important institution of sort of 
if you will, a certain kind of self-governance, but also that you're setting um, standards at a, the level of the profession or the discipline as to what constitutes good scholarship. And it helps to, I think, um, minimize uh, sort of um, political hierarchies uh, to some extent. It helps to minimize external intervention and control, say, having administrators uh, tell you what's good work and what isn't, uh, and so on. Simply to add to it, I think that precisely because we rely on the editorial board rather than our own personal connections, um, we're committed to making the review process as professional as possible, which sometimes it, it isn't, um, it, because it becomes a, the enterprise of sending out papers to friends of friends, friends, of friends yeah. um, and that I think is a mistake which would very much compromise the integrity of the process. Yeah. A lot of different <laughs> networks, a lot of different institutions rely upon cultural anthropology for um, for publication, for credentialing, for you know building tenure files, uh, and all those good things, all those important functions of journal, as well as just getting good scholarship out and uh, an interesting place to go to read the, the best of what the newest, latest, best work that's coming out. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, cultural anthropology is such an institution, I think, within anthropology in the United States and beyond now that it's really important that we are careful to make sure that many, many different voices uh, get heard here and not just sort of our, our friends. Uh, and I think that's really critical, both in terms of what we publish, but as well as who we ask to review um, the works that are submitted. So peer review is a credentialing process, it's a litmus test for scholarly aptitude and quality, but it's also meant to be helpful, especially to junior scholars, in terms of refining one's argument, in terms of understanding some of the nuances that might be occurring in a specific region or a theoretical orientation, because reviewers are expected to give constructive and critical feedback in the review process. Yeah, so it's real, meant to yeah. be helpful. We make a well. real emphasis in, in the guidelines we send to reviewers that they should be constructive. Uh, we don't. Uh, they should be writing, if they have criticisms, they should then be offering advice on how to improve the weaknesses of a piece, whatever they see. Um, I think that's incredibly important. I think we all think that's incredibly yes. important. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I would underline what Simone said too, that, that I think peer review is often seen as like a, as some kind of a, ordeal, uh, you know, uh, that someone has to go through, but actually is incredibly, I, I actually describe it as, uh, one of, another colleague described it as, you know, the well from which we all draw water and we all have to put in because it's, it's incredibly important. All of our work gets better through peer review. There's nothing that we receive that wouldn't be improved by peer review. There's nothing that any of the three of us could write that wouldn't be improved by peer review. So, so I think to see peer review is actually sort of a gift as well as a challenge is really important. And we, we, you know, thank our reviewers deeply for having taken the time to help, you know, restore our water, so to speak. So you mentioned earlier that you send out a majority of articles out for peer review, but not all of them are sent out for peer review. So how do you decide uh, which ones are declined immediately or after internal review? I'll take that up. This is James. Um, Obviously, uh, the straightforward answer is that if we get a paper of exceptionally poor quality, full of ideas that are not argued, uh, with no identifiable thesis, um, uh, rambling badly written, and so on, it will be rejected. But I think more importantly, um, we may reject even superb papers that are too far away from the profile of the uh, journal to really be um, appropriate for publication in it as a particular venue, in which case we often recommend uh, to an author to submit a journal, uh, submit a paper to another journal. Um, the profile of the journal, which I think uh, we recently more or less come to consensus on what we'd like to uh, highlight. Um, is based upon the journal's precedence, I mean, surely it, it, we're, our uh, administration is not uh, constituting radical swerve away from the journal and its foundations or what it has continued to be, but um, we're, it, it does occupy now a, a special place of prominence in the, in the field, so we're um, expecting to set the bar rather high. Uh, in the end. Um, again, 
it, it is by definition high because of the very, very few papers we can actually publish, but the, the initial bar is one um, that um, constitutes, is constituted by the currency of the thematic of a paper, um, which is to say we would be very, very unlikely to um, publish a paper in historical anthropology or on the history of anthropology, not because it's a poor quality, but simply because it uh, deviates too far from the, the profile. Um, we also um, very strongly stress that um, there be a substantial uh, rich ethnographic component to the argument offered. Um, also very important to us is that the paper display uh, command of the relevant scholarship and by this we're uh, wanting to underscore not simply the command of the other people who work on more or less exactly the same thing but also we very much hope reaching beyond the specific sort of networks that uh, the author might be embedded in to connect to um, arguments, thematics, etc., in uh, other other networks, other um, institutional loci, and so on in the discipline, um, which I think has been an increasingly weak dimension of the production of writing in anthropology, um, which I think we're quite committed to seeing if we can intervene into, uh, turn turn back in the other direction. Uh, Crucially, the essay has to be an essay, um, not a book outline, uh, not a thought piece uh, in the manner of some sort of high-style journal uh, article, uh, I mean, magazine article. Um, and measured, I would say, n not against competitor journals, since we don't really think of our terrain is one of competing, um, but nevertheless measured against what we've tried to make as explicit as possible um, as a, a set of criteria, not all of which any author has to meet, but most of which have to be addressed. Currency, again, the, the breadth of the conceptual thematic, the, not just dropping a word, right, not just dropping a new term, but actually providing us with some kind of systematic connected set of ideas uh, that are generative of uh, one hopes further work, not just the author's own, but inspiring to others. Um, and uh, so the, these issues of breadth and the kind of conceptual reach of the papers, given that they are grounded richly in ethnographic detail, I, I think are the, the fundamental issues that are going to divide the first cut from those uh, we go on to seek to have reviews for. Related to that question, um, I mean, I imagine after peer review there are more articles that are of high quality and maybe perhaps you wish you could publish than you can publish. Um, so is that the case? And then, how, I mean, how do you make that choice of who, of which article gets to be published and which ones perhaps just, make, just don't make the cut? Yes, well, I'll, I'll begin the response uh, by saying that we um, probably happily in every case, each case, have not yet had to, uh, have not arrived at that juncture at which we're going to have to start uh, making those kinds of decisions, which I'm sure will be painful, mm -hmm. uh, because we will be in the face of papers that are very, very good that um, ultimately we simply don't have the space to publish, which is quite regrettable. We hope that in the case of those papers, as we'll do as much as we can to make sure of that the review process has been of particular use and that uh, you know, publication elsewhere will be very, very likely. Um, so we'll obviously try to make that as clear to the, the near uh, contenders as we can. I, I invite my colleagues to comment on this uh, as well, because the, the only answer I have in my hip pocket is simply that those papers that um, meet and exceed the bar um, uh, as, you know, in outstanding a manner as, as possible are going to be those that will, you know, most, most readily publish in the journal. Of course, those, that bar is qualitative. It's not as if we 
uh, it looks like a nice solid little line, the judgment of uh, you know, crossing which or not crossing which is going to be at all simple. Um, but um, I think we still have to uh, be responsible to those criteria, which we, of course, are making quite public, um, so uh, that authors can uh, know in advance what we will be expecting to see at play in any given paper. Um, but I just underscore that it's going to be quite difficult. I, I really think quite difficult. As James said, we haven't gotten to the point where we've actually constructed a table of contents for mm. the first issue under our editorship. But when that moment does come, it is going to be difficult, but it's also going to require a lot of balancing acts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that in the sense of understanding that we want to represent different regions of the world mm -hmm. ethnographically, mm -hmm. we need to represent different theoretical orientations according to the readership of the journal, what important current debates are occurring in the field of anthropology more generally that are going to be very important for readers to be apprised of and to allow authors to have some voice around. So these will be some of the criteria that we have to take into account as we're shaping that that first issue and the second issue and those yeah. thereafter. It's, it's going to be a balancing act between those kinds of contingencies, substantive, regional, theoretical. And I'll just, uh, the only thing I would add, because I agree with all of this, um, to, just to, to go back to, to uh, James's um, uh, response to the last question, because the criteria that you were talking about that we now have published on the callanth.org site as of today, actually, which is great, um, uh, those criteria actually are very important even at this next stage, because we do send, we do send more, we know that we're sending more things out for peer review than we can publish. And so there are things that we send out which we know are unlikely to make the final cut, but we think it's important still for those pieces to hear, to get our feedback, but also to get peer review feedback too, because a lot of very promising work uh, needs a development process. It needs time to, time to simmer, time to mature. And uh, peer review is a great way of accelerating that process. So the things will come back where we'll know that, you know, uh, there's still are some flaws and there's still work to be done and we'll try to put together or we do try to put together sort of synthetic um, sort of uh, responses that includes the, the reviewers feedback as well as our own and gives people a roadmap hopefully for improving the work but that's true even you know I would say for you know as, as much as you know 75 percent of the work that we're looking at and then, then when you get to the last quarter become you have these very difficult distinctions where you have some very fine pieces and, and the only thing I would add there is I think that you know um, we are looking and this is part of the history and identity of the journal we're looking for pieces that are um, opening uh, helping to open new domains of anthropological scholarship that's always been something cultural anthropology has done is it's done a lot of work in emerging domains so I think if we had to pick between two very fine articles, one that was in a domain that's been well-developed and one that's in a domain that's still coming that we think is important and that actually will help you know, set an agenda for scholarship in the next several years, um, I think we'd probably pick the one in the emerging domain um, because that is sort of, I think, what cultural anthropology's place among in the broader sort of ecology of, of, of journals has been, uh, not the one that sort of has been the, maybe the, um, the, the sort of the safeguarder of the mainstream, but is the place that's always been sort of pushing the horizons of what's legitimate to pursue an anthropological inquiry. And so I think we take that, that tradition, if you will, of innovation seriously, and we try to, try to continue it on. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a moving mark in that, you know, what constitutes innovation at any given time is, 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 is has a historicity to it, it changes. And it's also, you know, subject to our own perhaps subjective evaluation. Um, but we do listen closely. We have a large editorial board, as Simony said. We listen to them closely. Uh, we listen to our colleagues across the field closely as to what we think you know, are the places that um, cultural anthropology could most fruitfully invest its attention right now. So I have one final question. Um, you will all be editors over the next five years. And I was wondering if you have any special plans yet for the journal, for example, special issues or pieces that do not fit the standard format of a peer-reviewed scholarly article. Would you mind sharing with us any of those ideas, if you have? 
So one of the innovations that we've been talking about and are now actually instituting is called openings and retrospectives. And obviously it's borrowing from the world of art, art galleries and museums and understanding contemporary forms of representation. And so we're very self-consciously borrowing from that. Openings will be provocative sets of essays uh, in short form between two and 4,000 words each with a cluster of maybe three to four in each cluster, so perhaps 12,000 words total, that will be based on emerging conversations in the field, in the field of cultural anthropology, in the field of the human sciences more generally. So these are provocations that are very much emergent, very contemporary openings. Uh, in the in the kind of standard concept of the of the form of openings, what we should be talking about. What we should be talking about. Retrospectives will be recasting some of the conversations that we have been having in the field of anthropology over the last five to ten years. These are still contemporary conversations. They're still contemporary thematics, but looking back over a range of issues that fit together in a cluster form that we can then review and um, kind of trace back how they've impacted the field, what sorts of lively conversations they've uh, provoked or evoked. So that will be the retrospectives. And so for this first set of openings and retrospectives, we will be curating them each individually. Uh, one of us from the editorial collective will, will choose a thematic and curate those uh, in the collections of three to four and invite people to contribute those. So these will take on the space of what's understood to be the special issue in the past. So rather than using a lot of the bandwidth that a special issue takes in a journal, these will be short form, they'll be very focused, they'll be thought pieces, they'll be essays that are, are provocations and very contemporary. And so we will do the first three of those. And then at that point, we will also be inviting people to contribute their own ideas, their own thematics to gather together these clusters of openings and retrospectives. And this is really broadly defined in terms of how people want to creatively rethink the field, either in terms of what's emerging or what we've been talking about that's been really salient and important. We have... Um, some some ideas, some issues that that we'll bring forward, but I think we're going to keep those okay. secret under teapot. wraps in the teapot for now. That's right. I think that's a, that's a good thing. And plus, again, some of these ideas have to do with when we would you know assume uh, control over the website as well next year. So uh, right now we're still learning the ropes and managing the sort of organization of of the routine work of of the journal. But it's obvious that the website offers a lot of flexible, innovative form uh, spaces for publication, uh, for new forms of publication, and so um, we want to, you know, make use of those uh, in the way that uh, previous editors have as well to develop some new features like this, for example. Although this will also exist in print form too. This will span the print and the digital um, openings and retrospectives well. I just the only comment I would make adding that was just that we have nothing against special issues. We think special issues are wonderful. Um, it was really more of a, de a decision that, given how much work, good work we have to turn down, to say we would take maybe a quarter or a fifth of the total number of things we could publish and devote them to one topic seemed like something we couldn't justify easily anymore. Um, that we'd rather have a, more diversity within the issues, um, within individual issues. And the opening retrospective sort of takes up about the space of an article and a half, so it's something that will, you'll have these sort of more pithy, provocative interventions that I think people do like to read too, um, maybe more theory-driven or concept-driven, we'll see. Um, uh, and that will, um, you know, create a space for kind of interesting uh, conversations to get started that doesn't really take away very much space from the kind of more traditional fieldwork driven um, longer articles that we publish. The other hope for the opening and retrospectives is also because they will be shorter pieces that they might have a wider readership um, because they'll be pithy, um, might be open to people who are outside of our kind of scholarly worlds that they might have more popular reception because they're digestible in their short form, that they will be more teachable in that register because they will be more amenable to using 
in a graduate classroom and an undergraduate classroom. So we hope that they're going to be very useful in that way too, both in terms of, of promoting what the journal is trying to do, but also having pedagogical opportunities um, within them without having to read quite as many words in order to get there. There seems to be a trend towards shorter form public communication mm -hmm. across the board. I mean, yes, well. You know, yeah. Monographs are getting shorter, yeah. shorter <laughs> too, right? I mean, I'm not yeah. saying it's a good thing, but it's a thing. The other, the other thing about website development and the digital medium is that we do have the potential to use more um, video mm. work, to use more audiovisual material, to have Articles perhaps have elements where you include video clips or audio recordings or some other phenomenological experience within the prose of your journal article. So these are potentials that, that we can try and build out over the next five years um, in terms of making the journal more multimedia in its orientation and, um, and its potential. Well, thank you for talking with me. Next, I spoke with George Marcus, who is Chancellor's Professor and Chair in the Department of Anthropology at University of California, Irvine. Let's listen to my conversation with George. Welcome to Anthropod, George. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Jessica. I'm glad to do this. I wanted to talk with you because I have heard that you were the first editor of Cultural Anthropology. I was. And so I was hoping you would share with us today that story behind how you, and I assume with many others, were involved uh, starting a journal. What was the motivation behind starting a new journal in anthropology? Um, and who, who did you work with to, to yes. begin the journal? Well, this is a bit of a story I'll tell as much of it quickly as I can. It was around 1984 that a group of prominent anthropologists uh, got together and thought that the AAA at that point had become uh, less of an intellectual organization and more of a kind of professional organization. And they thought that something, I guess uh, this included people like, well, I think the main voice that I remember was David Schneider from the University of Chicago, where he had moved to Santa Cruz by that time, not quite sure. Uh, people like Roy Dandrotti, who, who was very prominent in cognitive anthropology, uh, Clifford Geertz, of course, Marshall Solons, and there might have been two or three others, uh, someone to represent the kind of uh, political economy crowd. Uh, you might say that anthropology was broadly social-cultural in the U.S., divided into uh, crudely, you know, symbolic, interpretive, political economy, Marxist, and cognitive. Anyhow, the lead, these leaders at that time, very senior people, thought that the AAA had uh, lost uh, intellectual vitality and something needed to be done. So their idea was to form a new society the Society for Cultural Anthropology, and they thought that uh, what should go along with it was uh, its own journal. Anyhow, this was a very prestigious move of this kind. So the AAA, American Anthropological Associations, and its early subgroups was really fragmenting at this time. Each, uh, it came to be and maybe cultural anthropology was a leader here, that each subgroup should have its own publication. But the idea of cultural anthropology and forming this kind of, it's a bit of a revitalization movement within, that was the intention by very senior people, that it should be, uh, you know, a, a proper journal and to go along with what they were doing. Their, their idea was that uh, they would have meetings that were, high-level, intellectually focused and themed. And pretty much cultural anthropology as a, an organization has followed that, that pattern. Even though whether it became the kind of elite-type uh, elite 
you know, uh, academic society, that, that became unclear. Originally, they had the idea that uh, you wouldn't just sign up. You would have to, there would be a, uh, some sort of a, a election process. It wasn't rigorous like that, or, or the language wasn't excluding, but it was definitely the idea that uh, we want to form this society not to discuss issues of uh, the you know, public uh, profile of anthropology or not to promote it as an organization purely for professional advancement, but as our intellectual core, where uh, controversies uh, could be articulated and spoken. Anyhow, it was that kind of movement. Anyhow, their idea was, and we would have a journal to go along with it. Unlike the present, being a journal editor, the status of journals in the AAA was, it was uh, troubled is too strong a word, uh, problematic is too strong a word. But the, the journals in the AAA were flat. I think the general Ken was to be a journal editor was uh, not an opportunity for, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, a service of some sort. It was not easy uh, to go out and get people to be editors. Uh, people didn't think that editing was, there was, you know, there was any reward from editing. Uh, the, the journals had fallen, uh, the standi standing of journals as such had dipped at that point. So it, being the journal, the new journal editor was no, uh, there was no great sense of competition around it. There was, it was no prize to be won. I viewed it as an opportunity, sure. but I don't think that there was good communication between me and those who picked me huh. about who I was, what I wanted to do. All they knew was that anthropology at that point needed to be revitalized. What were some of the challenges in being the first editor? Um, well, any challenges you want to talk about, but I'm also thinking about infrastructure. Like, How did you get it printed? How did you find peer reviewers? It's quite different than now. The publication department at the AAA was not tied to any larger publishing agreement with anybody. They published in the classic sense of, you know, uh, scholarly societies. They published their own journals. I dealt with one beleaguered guy who, <laughs> and I think the job turned over, but a name, guy named Rick Custer. And he, you know, every conversation was partially about the business of our journal, but the general problems of trying to turn out by that time over 20 publications. The main one, of course, being the American Anthropologist and the American Ethnologist. Mm. And so I was adding yet another one. Mm. And everything was done in-house. The design of the cover, uh, decisions about uh, length, etc., etc. These were all uh, I'm not saying casual things, but they were all very local things. There, 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 there was no distribution was all done out of the AAA offices. Big if you visit the AAA offices, there'd be big back stocks of, you know, different journals, et cetera, et cetera. It was an amazingly small operation. What's hard to know a variety of reasons why people didn't want to be journal editors in those days. I think one of the ideas that you had to have uh, local support from your university, and I did. I had uh, a stipend from Rice, that, and they, I think they understood why it was a good thing to do, to have an editorial office, but uh, not to pay editorial assistance and so forth. Uh, that was a uh, volunteer uh, you know, I went, before talking to you, I went back and from time to time, unlike contemporary editors who I think write editorials all the time, I had written uh, a beginning uh, editorial called Beginning, oh. and I had written one so, uh, toward the end and something in the middle. So I, I went back and I got a good sense of what motivated me, but it was very clear from the very first essay that this journal... 
uh, was to be like other small cultural intellectual journals uh, that, of which there were many models at the moment. So from the very start, I wanted, and this was unprecedented for the AAA, that this was a journal, an anthropology journal, that had this uh, deeply interdisciplinary desire in a certain direction. That it was going to actually, for this period, in its inauguration and for my editorship, going to develop in relation to, hopefully, uh, I hate the term in retrospect, cultural studies, but the whole, shall we say, cultural theory revitalization movement that was reflected mainly in uh, humanities-stimulated journals, but often they would have uh, a kind of, um, uh, Jim Clifford talks about this better, this history of, you know, the small journal, the idea that you would publish uh, uh, edgy stuff uh, in small journals that dealt with cultural, contemporary, and uh, humanistic matters. Now, I always, I think in the way I said this, I made it clear is that it was to craft the journal in that manner. And that was catching the wave. Uh, and self-consciously so, although I didn't sit down one day and say, this is what we're going to do. It seemed, if I were going to do the journal, and, I, and we had the, in those period of the 80s, these really vibrant discussions of um, literature and ethnography or culture and literature, and the issues that theory that was generating that, the kind of theory that we sort of, uh, that was the way to go. So in the first journal, I said, this is going, the model of this I'd list is going to be like Raritan, October, the American scholar. I gave these as examples. They turn out to be, in the end, fairly conservative cultural journals. Or, and I think of that period, the model was, uh, the hot journal was representations. That was generated out of the Berkeley department. And the important thing to understand is that the model of that journal, I mean, you couldn't do that now. I mean, people would get academic credit for having published articles in that journal, but they were not sent out for review. Those journals were uh, constructed by the local group of editors. Now, I was not going to go uh, proposing that model entirely, but it was it did have this uh, aroma of, uh, uh, you know, uh, cliqueishness. The other thing is, to differentiate myself from the other journal, I sort of opened other journals, is that we would publish, it's uh, pretty much uh, described in, at the back of the journal, the, the little paragraph you use to welcome new articles. Very, very long articles, almost monograph-length articles, short notices, uh, not so much book reviews as uh, thought pieces, uh, short essays, fragments, etc. Uh, the person who would probably articulate this best and most nostalgically was, you know, Jim Clifford in a way. Uh, it's the small... Uh, uh, scholarly uh, kind of so that was supposed to be its distinction. Now, that so that was its ethos. It was actually explicit. It wasn't the hijacking of the a journal of the AAA. It was it was very much in the zeitgeist of of the emerging zeitgeist of that time, so that anthropology would have a kind of journal which would play in the organs that were stimulating uh, this new tendency, the, what became the writing culture thing. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, now, did you yeah. invite uh, people to submit yes. articles, or did you put out uh, an put, open call, or how did yes, you... Yes, I put out open call, but uh, cultural anthropology was not known to anybody, so I... Maybe for the first year, I put together uh, the journal from requests 
Like the first issue has the showing our seriousness has something called uh, cultural exchange and gender lessons from the Murick, and it goes from page six to seventy four. It's a mini monograph, and it's a very serious and interesting, though not uh, flavor of the day, day theoretically uh, study in um, uh, the Sepik area in New Guinea. And then I have a very uh, uh, still much quoted piece by Doreen Kondo on re a basic article on you know the theory of ethnographic reflexivity about her uh, identity issues working in in Japan. And I had I'm, I'm, I, this is just an example. I had a review essay uh, by Jane Hill, very much an established uh, linguistic anthropologist who was writing on whom. Bakhtin, who was very in, and the idea that Bakhtin, who writes on poetics, uh, and Bakhtin was one of the signature theorists of that period, uh, saying why anthropologists might be interested in uh, literary theory. There was a, comment, a short commentary, an interview with Pierre Bourdieu, very in. You can see, basically, from the the list of papers that uh, what it what it anticipated, but not like foresaw over the horizon. But what it anticipated and expressed was the kind of evolution of these new. Uh, uh, I hate the term. I, I absolutely reject any concept of the postmodern. It wasn't that there was a d diverse and diffuse impact of. Uh, theory through literature on anthropology at that time, and it was coming. And you might say the journal, not in any narrow way, not in any ideological way, sort of found the home there. And partially it was who I asked, uh, who eventually started sending stuff in, but it was also the format. Just as I said, one long article, one short piece, a review essay on a book that anthropologists would not normally, uh, you know, uh, anthropologists in good standing would not normally uh, review uh, this kind of thing. This was also a period when anthropologists thought they, they might be doing short stories and poetry. And I, I had to actually fend off uh, uh, a number of uh, requests that I published their poetry. You have, to, you have to think about that time. And I did. I think I uh, wound up publishing one poem, How to Die in America, by Stanley Diamond, a very famous uh, anthropologist on the left, you know, Marxist anthropologist from New York, uh, who spent the latter part of his career, you know, and uh, writing poetry, cultivating it. Uh, but that was... Yeah. So the journal definitely was embedded in the intellectual zeitgeist of the U.S. academia at that moment. But it tried to retain a kind of, uh, not, not a journal of issues, uh, uh, issues as such, uh, not activist, not, it's not more, it, it wasn't, it was what it was at the moment, not what that tendency became. Not, uh, it, it's still retained this identity of having uh, academic scholarly articles like anthropology journals published, but the polish on them was its interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary uh, linkages at that moment. And that was, yeah, there was resistance to that. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Why was there resistance? Because anthropologists had been used to, in terms of thinking of their own organization, tribally. So uh, there were complaints that uh, it, I wasn't representing the Columbia uh, political economy crowd, that, uh, you know... The journal uh, had been not hijacked. Nobody ever used that term. Uh, that 
the journal wasn't perhaps being run uh, as a uh, proper journal should be in the sense of, uh, you know, setting up immediately a review system, a blind review system, uh, where you send things out, you know, like journals must operate now. It was, it was an exception. I, so I heard from members of the board, somebody's not happy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Others maybe threw up their hands and said, oh, this is what it's become. Although I must say that, you know, I spent, nothing was laid out. The, it, it was a huge fun and a huge privilege in the sense that Nobody said I had to do it this way or that way. Uh, nobody, nobody said how long I was editor for. Mm-hmm. I was editor for six years. Mm-hmm. Who I was going to pass it on to was very, I think I passed it on to uh, Fred Myers. And then Dan Siegel held it for a while. There were complaints. The, the, it is true that I encouraged uh, interesting things that I don't think would ever have been accepted by, uh, it would have been, you know, I, I sort of was say this is over the line, not over the line, this kind of thing. So I actually, uh, ran the journal pretty much out of my own. It's not like I didn't listen to anybody. I had people down the hall talking to me about it. Uh, but, uh, by my own personal judgment. And to be honest, it didn't become important really important to anybody else. The, the journal was a success. It got high for the AAA high number of subscriptions early on, and that's the only sign of success. Must have had very quickly seven, eight hundred, which was much better than the others were doing. Uh, you had to join the Society for Cultural Anthropology, you know, um, to get the journal, but it was it was it was a success, and so it having been whatever counted as a success allowed me to do what I wanted to do for a long time. But it took years to actually regularize the reviewing system, and in other words, sending sending it out, you know, machine like to blind reviewers who would come back, and I would I would show the reports the the whole journal. Uh, legitimate journal process that we have. The whole thing was run more, they were right. It was kind of run out of my back pocket. I guess my last question, because we have been talking a while already, uh, I was just curious if you had uh, reflections on where the journal is now and maybe how it's changed over the past. Well, it's a house journal now. It's a house journal now with an inflection of difference. Cultural anthropology has become a uh, uh, one of the key, uh, what do you call it, the journals that, um, uh, you know, validate careers. So, like the American ethnologist, like uh, uh, an- American anthropologist, cultural anthropology is one, I would say one of the, has become one of the big three. Right, and it uh, anthropology's changed. Writing culture is no longer in there; those issues are out there. So research is all about whatever, in an early sense, those kinds of uh, at least theoretical questions or questions of representation were about. They're now problems in the world. So that kind of it. I I would like to think that through this angle of this problem of writing representation, it brought the present back, but cultural anthropology. Now, what I'm proud of is that that inflection of difference, that cultural anthropology is a journal which, uh, in an interdisciplinary sense, leads uh, more within the realm of the parallel development of theory, however that's occurred in the interdisciplinary sense. It, the articles of cultural anthropology reflect that. They're supposed to be uh, in some ways, more uh, theoretically playful or sophisticated. Uh, I hope that's not an offensive word to other. I'm, I'm, uh, if you pick up a, 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 um, 
an issue of American ethnologists, uh, you'll find very similar. But the imago of the two uh, remain different, right? I mean, people who recently have been editors of the American ethnologists could be editors of, of uh, cultural anthropology. But it has, still has that imago. And I'm extremely proud that the, not in competition with other journals, of older journals, but that cultural anthropology, you know, uh, is uh, one that continues to uh, think ahead or in relation to uh, what the changing trends are. So I think cultural anthropology uh, uh, um, you know, part of this is personal. Former students have been editors of cultural anthropology. Cultural anthropology is now being edited at Rice again. But uh, taking all that, uh, uh, you know, warm nostalgic stuff away, it indeed has uh, been a leader in thinking through the changing forms and meanings of the traditional journal as, as media have changed, more so uh, than the other uh, journals. Not that, my, for instance, my colleague Tom Bolstorff did a brilliant job of rethinking what uh, editing the American anthropologist should be. But there's more flexibility with these other journals to uh, do things that don't necessarily, you know, define what anthropology is. There's more flexibility. And I would say that there, there, there's just no doubt about it that anth uh, cultural anthropology has been a leader in thinking through that kind of innovation. And I would like to think that uh, it could have happened anyhow, but I would like to think that that is because it began uh, in this kind of uh, 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 trying to define itself in relation to a kind of uh, broader, broader field of media and publication, which was relevant at that time. And it's very nicely followed that evolution. Well, thank you, George, for taking the time to talk with me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Finally, I spoke with Mary Murrow. Mary is currently an A.W. Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Anthropology at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before earning her PhD, Mary was an acquisitions editor at Princeton University Press, where she acquired titles in the humanities and social sciences. Let's listen. Mary, welcome to Anthropod. Thank you, Jessica. I'm happy to be talking to you today because of both your experience as an editor at Princeton University Press and the research you recently conducted on the future of the book and mass digitization. Could you share with us the topic of your dissertation? Sure. So I was interested in um, thinking about the book anthropologically. I had been interested for a while in the curious anxiety that I detected around books. This question of print versus digital was always very anxiety provoking in the United States at least. And you can see this borne out today in controversies around Amazon, etc. The sense that although books are a commodity in a business, they have this special significance that always makes them more important than the business issues. So right now, Amazon and Hachette are having a conflict over terms, and that's it's constantly being written about in the press. And, and analysts will say that, well, if we were just writing you know, some other business, it wouldn't matter. But because it's books, it's getting all this coverage. So there's this kind of extra, this cultural surplus around books that makes them curiously important. And so I wanted to sort of explore that and to think about that beyond what I, you know, could read about it in the press. And also I wanted to situate it in, in this moment of wide interest in digitization, these digitization activities that were going on around us. So this was in 2006, 2007, which was before the Kindle, before the big growth of eBooks, um, before the iPhone, the iPad, iBooks, Google Play, a lot of stuff has happened in the meantime. At that time, Google had been digitizing books at this very large scale and with a lot of controversy. So that was where I thought I would focus my attention. So I, I, I chose as my field site a place called the Internet Archive 
which was founded in 1996 for the purpose of archiving the World Wide Web so that the web could be captured and indexed and made into an archive and people could research the past of the web. So you could call up a, a website from 1998 or, or whenever. So to turn it from an ephemeral thing into something that could be preserved and made available to researchers or just citizens, anybody. And its motto is universal access to human knowledge. Google's is also something similar, you know, to organize all the world's information and make it universally accessible. So it, it's, they have similar kind of ambitions in that sense, though the archive is a small nonprofit digital library. That's what it calls itself, a digital library. But its founder um, in this mission of uh, universal access was a proselytizer for mass digitization of everything um, analog so that it could be made part of the World Wide Web, which is the future. You know, everything, if it's not on the web, it doesn't exist. That's a kind of common mantra of the people that I did my research with. So it had been involved with book digitization before Google around the turn of the century, of this century, the 21st. So I went there to start my research. Shortly after I uh, arrived, it had become involved in these efforts to counter Google's book project, um, which was then the subject of a big lawsuit. So the context of my research was this big response to Google's project from the location of the Internet Archive, which was set up as this kind of um, good guy versus Google's bad guy. And that's a that's a crude way of thinking about what they were doing, but that is commonly how it was set up. And it is how the actors themselves saw their position in this. But it was a controversy and a, a mobilization around digi the digitization of books specifically in which all of these kind of uh, the, the cultural significance of books could be examined. So, so that, that's where I began. And what's different from looking at books from this perspective than, say, from book publishing or the, you know, what Robert Darton has called the communication circuit of the book, is that it allows us to look at that very communication circuit, but from the position of the World Wide Web. Because these actors, whether it's Google or the Internet Archive, were asking the question of how books could be made part of the World Wide Web, which to them is an embodiment of future culture, you know, what culture will be in the future. So that's where I did my fieldwork. And it was to ask, you know, well, in the end, it was a way of seeing the book. Um, and this is how I think of the book as a space of conflict and realigning social relations around the book. So it's not the book as an object or the book as one thing, but as a um, field of social relation. Given that, you know, in media studies, the book is something that is part of the past. You know, it's, it's the 19th century. It is an epic before the one we're in, whether it's Walter Benjamin or, or Marshall McLuhan or Friedrich Kittler. Books are somehow supposed to be um, behind us. And yet we see continually that, that they are a space of great cultural contention. And so it was in that space that I found my way of, of teasing out the cultural significance of books, at least in the United States at this particular moment in time. I know you also worked at a university press for many years. What were your responsibilities at Princeton? Well, I was an acquiring editor. There are many positions in publishing that have the term editor, but an acquiring editor is the person who identifies and attracts books and authors to the publisher. So it, at Princeton University Press, I was an acquiring editor in anthropology for the 14 years that I was there. And... Uh, but I also acquired in some other fields. But it was really in anthropology that I was there the longest, and that's the field that I came to know the best. So you're you know, responsible for acquiring a certain number of books a year. You oversee peer review, um, which takes up most of your time, unfortunately, you know, getting reviews for books, presenting books to the editorial board, all of those things that work to authorize the imprint um, and the author in the book itself. Uh, and then after that, you're the proxy in-house for the author throughout the publishing process and even beyond. You know, it seems as though you've encountered and thought deeply about the book from many different perspectives as editor and then student, researcher, 
teacher and now an author yourself. Could you share with us how your relationship and perspectives on the book has changed in some of these different roles? Well, you know, that's a great question and it's it's a complicated one because books themselves are are really actually terrifically complex things and they look different depending where you're situated um, socially. So in my case, you know, I professionally, I've occupied many of those positions. You know, before I was an acquiring editor, I was a copy editor and a production editor. These are the people that actually make books or shape them, you know, give them a lot of those things that we don't really appreciate because we don't, you know, we don't see them there. It's just makes that thing that we read. And then I was an acquiring editor and I've been a developmental editor since then, freelance. And then as a reader, I've occupied many different positions. So publishers read books entirely differently than the intended audience of a book. Copy editors read books entirely differently than acquiring editors read them. It all shifts depending on what you're doing with a book. So, and then as a graduate student, you read in a, in, a, in a different way. In fact, I think it's the most intimate type of reading is when one is using a book as either a, um, a researcher in theoretical terms or a researcher using a book for the information. And I mean, it's a really intense engagement. And then as a teacher, when you use books to educate people, that's another entirely different involvement because you're really trying to uh, understand and use a book through someone else's eyes. In that respect, you see books very differently. And then as a writer of a book, which is what I'm doing now, um, one that I hope to publish, it's an entirely different situation. So, uh, you know, once I publish a book and then see its way into the world, um, that circle will be complete and I'll have even more to say. But added to this is that I was actually a researcher studying books you know, making them an object of analysis, which is an, an intensification of all of what I've said already. And when you study books as a field of social relation, then you respect that there are entirely other ways of looking at books. For instance, the way technologists who are looking at books from the perspective of the web might see books. And this was very eye-opening to me and really a source of what one might call ethnographic encounter quite a difference from the bookishness um, that would have characterized all of my prior relationships with books and also the perspective from libraries so digital libraries the the internet archive is full of web technologists but also people who see themselves as creating a digital library of the future and google itself has a kind of library function so when you look at books from that perspective you see them again differently my research and my professional life have enabled me to see the book as this kind of multifaceted thing with kaleidoscopic perspectives available if you're willing to situate yourself in different locations so so when i started my research i had certain you know sympathies and predilections and they've shifted quite a bit depending on what stage I was in. So now I'm in the author stage and I find myself feeling very differently about things than I did when I was in the midst of my research. So so I don't know how this will all shake out, but when I think about questions around scholarly publishing today, which are mostly around open access, these questions provide yet another possible way of thinking about books. I don't think that those conversations have gotten as far with books as they have with journals, which is where most of that action is. But I, you know, there are attempts to think about books differently in in the scholarly world, but I they haven't made a lot of headway. So there is still a kind of typical way in which books and anthropology are written and published and circulate. But I think I think those things are changing for reasons that don't necessarily have to do with technology. But anyhow, um, it's a long way of answering your question that there are many, many ways to think about books, but the only one thing that I would say is common to all of them is that books are complex and they take a lot of time to make, um, they take a lot of time to write, and they take a lot of time to read. And so there is something very rich about them, something luxurious about them, something laborious about them, and something very time intensive about them. And those are all things that I think are, are why there are 
considerable challenges to books continuing to be a robust part of our ecology of communication in the academy. And I think those things don't have as much to do with technology as people often suggest. So anyhow, there are many, I, I suppose my long-winded answer to your question is a way of suggesting how complex books are as circulating objects. Well, thank you so much, Mary. This has been really lovely talking with you. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to thank Dominic Boyer, James Fabian, Simony Howe, George Marcus, and Mary Merle again for speaking with me. And thank you, Jessica, for proposing and creating this podcast. How was the whole process? It was a lot of fun and a pleasure to have all of those interesting conversations. Great. Well, if anyone else is like Jessica and has an idea for a podcast, let us know. Pitch us your ideas at anthropod at callant.org, and we'll work with you to transform that idea into a podcast. Also, we want your feedback on the podcast so far, what you've liked, what you'd like to hear in the future. And we want to know who's listening. Help us out by completing our brief survey. A link to the survey can be found on the show notes for this episode. Go to callanth.org and search for Anthropod. And while you're there, also check out our previous episodes. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And send us your comments about this and any other episode by tweeting us at callanth, emailing us at anthropod at callanth.org, or posting on callanth.org or Culture Anthropology's Facebook page. I also want to say thank you to Rupa Polai for help in editing, and a thanks to Bascom Guffin and Grant Otsuki for technical assistance. I'm Jessica Lockram. And I'm Rupa Polai. Thanks for listening. <laughs>